According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again. We are in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 14. And we're tying together the last things out of verses 7, 8, and 9. And we're getting ready to move on to uh, 10 through 14. Proverbs 14, verses uh, 7, 8, and 9. I think we pretty much wrapped that up last week. I'll double check. And then uh, we'll move on to 10 through 14. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let us, uh, let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness and calling upon your faithfulness as we study to show ourselves approved, Father. We Pray uh, that you would set aside distractions and hedge us about, protect us from anyone that would come in here and bring us to harm or to stop what we're doing. Father, thank you for the freedom that our land has and has enjoyed since its founding. We uh, continue to enjoy those freedoms and pray that you continue to preserve them to our children and to the oncoming generations. Father, we uh, call upon your faithfulness in the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that he would open the eyes of our understanding. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to go as long as my voice holds out, so we'll see. (laughs) I think it's better than it sounds, though, so uh, we could be all right. Um, Proverbs 14, and it was point six in the outline, whereby we were looking at that triplet of verses in verses 7, 8, 9, contrasting foolishness and wisdom, which, by the way, is descriptive of almost the entire book. Uh, the entire book of Proverbs portrays that contrast between wisdom and foolishness. Um, but in particular, there are segments and sections within Proverbs that spotlight it uh, all the more so, and that's what we have here in a triplet, um, containing the first imperative. We have not seen an imperative since we left the parental wisdom portion of the book. Remember, chapters 1 through 9 I've titled Parental Wisdom because it's just saturated with a parent pleading with his son saying, my son, my son, listen to my father, or listen to your father's voice. Do not reject your mother's teaching. And so those first nine chapters are very parental. We get to chapters 10 and following, really 10 through 24, uh, I call it personal and public wisdom. Personal and public wisdom. And so that conveys what I think this section of the book communicates, is that once you are on your own, in your own generational accountability, you stand before, before God. And how you live personally, how you apply wisdom personally, the personal choices you make in your personal life, also the public expression of your faith, the impact you have in your marriage, in your family, in your community, in your nation. And so personal and public wisdom. And it's, it's marvelous the way they get interwoven through these chapters because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's part and parcel of who we are in the body of Christ. We are born-again believers. We are children of God. And, and as we live the Word of God, our very being is transformed in that way. And the idea, this world is trying to you know, shut us up and tell us that we can be religious in private, but how dare you bring that to the public square? That is just in open defiance of what our Scriptures tell us. We are in public who we are in private, and that's, that's who we are as transformed sons of God, sons and daughters of God. And so personal and public wisdom. Now, so we have personal and public wisdom here in chapters 10 through 24. And yet, once we, the, one of the other shifts that happen, we don't have the my son, my son exhortations like we had. We also don't have all the imperatives. 
There were tons of imperatives in those first nine chapters. Not so many in these, in these next chapters, right? 10 through 24. Until you get to 14.7. And in 14.7 it says, leave the presence of a fool. And that's a command. That's an imperative. And that's not a hint or an option or a, you know, uh, a, a tip for godly living. It's a command. Leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge or literally lips of knowledge. And uh, the uh, negative impact that can happen when you don't separate. So we had some subpoints there. We had an A and a B that covered verse 7. Um, separation is desirable, advisable, and commanded. Uh, if we just surround ourselves with a bunch of pagans and a bunch of uh, carnal believers, that we're not doing ourselves any favors. There are hindrances to apprehending God's wisdom, and there are hindrances, obstacles, to identifying messengers of God's wisdom. You, and if you can't even spot the lips, how are you going to listen to the words in, uh, in that? Under point C and D, we looked at verse 8. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. And we realize that God's wisdom provides a practical benefit for charting a course forward. Yet we should understand our way. We should know who, what, where, when, why, and how. Uh, as far as the plan of God in our dispensation, in our day and age. That uh, I am not a uh, Levitical Jewish priest in, in an Old Testament stewardship. I am a uh, Melchizedek uh, uh, priest in the ecclesiastic uh, stewardship of the church. I am in Christ. And I have Jesus Christ, the apostle and high priest of my confession. And my priesthood is far above and beyond anything that the Levitical priesthood ever dreamed of. And uh, so I want to know who I am, where I am, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Why did God put me here? What is, uh, if we're saved in the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, uh, am I pursuing that? Am I on board with the plan of God for my life? And uh, God's wisdom will, uh, will provide that practical benefit. The foolishness of this world is a lie, but uh, fools prefer it for their course forward. They actually prefer the lie. They, they much rather like the lie, and even if deep down they, they know it's not true, they want it to be true so badly they act as if it is true. Because the truth is scary. The truth exposes them. The light uh, shines and it exposes their darkness. They want no part of it. John chapter 1 talks about that. So um, the fool, the, they would much rather embrace the lie. And they would, no matter how unbelievable it is, no matter how much proof it would take, and no matter how little proof there actually is. And this fundamentally is the, uh, is the uh, argumentation behind um, Norman Geisler. Have you read, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist? It's a marvelous apologetics text. And, it, and he just describes, if you're going to be an atheist, then you've got to have this huge amount of faith to believe this, 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 and this, with very little evidence or no evidence whatsoever. And so rationally, how do you believe that? And uh, <coughs> and he just concludes, he says, you know, I don't have enough faith to believe all that with such little evidence. And as opposed to biblical Christianity, on the other hand, whereby uh, there is much more evidence and rationally we can accept the faithfulness of God and His truth and His promises and what the Word of God says. And so, uh, you know, when you approach it on that basis, <laughs> who's the rational one and who's the irrational one when, uh, when all is said and done? Anyway, so... Uh, we dealt with those issues under points C and D. And then finally, verse 9, uh, we covered under the outline uh, points E and F. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. Among the upright there is ratzon. There is uh, a lot of hugging <laughs> related to, and it's hard for me because I'm not a hugger. I didn't grow up in a hugging uh, kind of culture, but um, come to the south and there's, there's hugging. <laughs> All right? In any event, fools mock the consequences of sin, 
which we looked at, uh, you know, from Cain and, and Lamech in Genesis 4 to uh, what's described there in Psalm 10 and Psalm 94, what Paul warns about in Philippians chapter 3, uh, that there are enemies of the cross of Christ and uh, their throat is an open grave and, and their, their God is their belly or their appetite. And uh, they're just mocking at it. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. You know, that's just mocking at sin in flagrant rebellion against uh, where you don't even hide it in the darkness. You don't even have enough shame to at least keep your your skin, your sin, your skin covered. <laughs> I guess that too related to that. So mocking the consequences of sin. There is no God. He, I'm not accountable, so I can do what I want to do. I am my own God. How dare you tell me that my lifestyle is immoral? And so that's just mocking as the creature mocking the creator. Well, God is not mocked, and we know that we reap what we sow. Finally, then, the Ratzon is where we spent most of last week. A gathering of upright ones collectively fosters God's delight. Now, an individual, of course, can individually foster God's delight. There's no question. We've got plenty of examples. David was a man after God's own heart. Abraham was called his friend. Um, Enoch uh, was pleasing unto God. He walked with God, we're told, and then he was not, for God took him. There's a lot of individuals that are pinpointed as Ratzon, as, as delights that God had, takes pleasure in. Um, but but then collectively, what we see here is the collective application. And uh, among the uprights, that's a, that's a collective gathering. That's in our midst. There is goodwill. There is favor. There is Ratzon. And it's not Chesed, and it's not Chain, uh, or it's not some of the other Hebrew terms that typically get rendered as grace or favor, uh, but this is the ratzon favor that is the um, the delight. All right, it actually speaks of an emotional um, response to a stimulus. It speaks to uh, an emotional response or a, or a sensual response. Might be the better way. Okay, sensuality is not always bad when we use it in a sanctified sense. Okay, that means it's pleasing to the senses. It looks attractive. It smells nice. It tastes great. It feels, you know, soft or toasty or whatever. We have we have sensibilities based upon being sensual beings, right? <coughs> and so God as well has a delight. That's why sacrifices are called a sweet-smelling savor when He finds favor. Okay? And that's the idea of just the, ooh, that amazing aroma, right? There's nothing better. I mean, just dead cow, okay, is on a grill, dead cow is marvelous. In a ditch on the side of the road, after being in the desert sun for several days, uh, no, dead cow is not marvelous. So I see. And so what's the difference? It's dead cow both ways. All right. Well, we can talk about that because Corinthians deals with that. You and I are a sweet aroma of life to life, but we're also a, a, an aroma of death to death among those that are perishing. And so while we might have that sweet aroma amongst ourselves or that ratzon that's spoken of here, for those that are not of us, um, it is anything but a sweet-smelling savor. It is not a delight, a favorable, acceptable thing. So um, anyway, these are the, uh, the uses here. And we did not look at these last week, so we got to look at these. I uh, remember we just kind of introduced it with Leviticus 1 and showed you the, uh, the idea that it does have connection with sacrifices, and that's where we, uh, we're running out of time. I know we didn't look at Isaiah 61 yet, so... <coughs> did we look at the other Leviticus uses? 19 or 22 or 23? Anyone? Were you awake last week? 
See, I never pay attention, so I don't. Let's just uh, run through them again real quickly. It won't take long. But remember, uh, an abomination, as the Bible describes it, it's something else we're not supposed to talk about these days because not politically correct that uh, you know they have their abomination parades. But the Bible calls it an abomination, and the language of abomination is the opposite of ratzon. The language of the of the abomination is something you want to push away from you. You want it far from you. You you don't want it within arm's length. And so uh, with abomination, you're pushing it away. You want no proximity. With ratzon, you're embracing it. You're drawing it closer, and that's the. That's the, uh, the imagery on that. So um, Leviticus 1.3, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted. That's ratzon before the Lord. And this, uh, this sets apart the fundamental principle that approaching God must be done on God's terms. It can't be done on our terms. It can't be done with something we think is acceptable. It must be what God accepts as acceptable. And uh, you know, Cain brought his vegetables and that was not acceptable. Abel brought uh, a blood offering of a, of a sacrificial lamb and that was acceptable, as we see here, uh, without defect, a male without defect. And this is because the shadow doctrine of the Old Testament was doctrine, it was prophecy, it was pointing ahead to the fulfillment in Christ. Leviticus 19.5, more rat's own. <coughs> So uh, warning is against idolatry and uh, warnings to, uh, to be holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Now, of course, in the New Testament, we have a different Sabbath application, but we still have a Sabbath principle in the New Testament. And uh, we understand that. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord God. Now when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. All right. So both the offering is accepted, but ultimately it's the offerer. It's the person bringing the offering who is accepted, who is ratzon, approaching God on the basis of an acceptable offering. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it. They must have eaten a lot of animals, <laughs> right? And, and the Levites and the priests, they have the opportunity to fellowship with the, with the, the meat that they're cooking. They have an opportunity to learn as, as scribes, uh, as the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Levites and the priests had a teaching ministry to the Jewish nation and, uh, and so forth. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. Why? What's so significant about the third day? Well, leftovers go bad. No, beyond that, doctrine. What, what do you think of the doctrine of the third day is significant? So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It will not be accepted. And uh, everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity for he has profaned the holy thing of the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. Okay, Dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's 19.5. In chapter 22, we got a whole assortment of them from verse 19, 20, 21, and 29, all in Leviticus. (coughs) All this rat zone. A flawless animal for sacrifice. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, any man 
of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel. Notice, you might have non-Israelis, non-Jews that that choose to sojourn in your land. Nevertheless, they are accountable to uh, the laws of Israel um, who present his offering, whether it is any of their votive or any of their free will offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering for you to be accepted. It must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. This is terribly sexist. Why does it always have to be a male? (laughs) All right. (coughs) Anyway, uh, for it, for you, for you to be accepted is verse 19. If there's a defect, no. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer for it will not be accepted for you. You might imagine in an, in an agricultural economy when uh, your wealth is measured in, in, in animals, in livestock, well, you want to, I mean, you want to keep the healthy ones, right? Don't you want to, uh, you kind of, yeah, you can do that religious thing, but put the lame, you know, and, and lazy and, and broken sheep over here, give that one to the Lord because you want this strong, healthy one to, to procreate and mate and you're going to, you know, you want healthy offspring for the next generation of your, of your, of your flock. God says no. <laughs> okay, you can't cut quarters or cheat or rob God in uh, in that regard. He gets the best of your flock. And uh, anyway, how about uh, verse twenty one? Um, when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or of a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There should be no defect in it. And those that are blind or fractured or maimed or have a running sore, eczema, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. See, it's a picture of our sinless and perfect Savior. All the way down to verse 29 then, when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be ratzon, accepted, and it shall be eaten on the same day. All All that's in chapter 22. One final Leviticus use in chapter 23 in verse 11. (coughs) Here's the uh, wave offering. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I'm going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits uh, of your harvest to the priest. And when you're just harvesting the very first, the very first sheaf, remember, you have no idea whether what the size of that harvest you have no idea whether it's going to be a bumper crop it's going to be a great a great amount or it's going to be a rough year it's going to be thin you know you might have your own guess or whatever just based on looking around and seeing but when you're taking that first sheaf out of the ground and presenting that before the lord that's a that's a faith testimony that uh, that, that belongs to the lord and you're not uh, you know, you're not approaching it on the basis of, well, let me get the whole harvest in first and see what I have left over and see if it was a good year or not. And if it was a good year, then then I'll go ahead and give a good offering. If it was a, a lean year, well, then, you know, God may have to just kind of, uh, you know, do without for a while because <laughs> that's how that's how people give in their post, um, uh, whatever you want to call that. Uh, we're supposed to give first fruits. All right. Did I read verse 11 yet? He, so he shall wave. So uh, you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Lord. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And so there you have it. It's a public display in waving the, uh, the sheaf. <coughs> With that then comes an offering, a male lamb, one-year-old without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. There's more. 
Uh, it comes with a grain offering. Shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil. Don't be cheating on your recipe. Don't be skip, skimping on the uh, ingredients. An offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma with its drink offering. Aha! This sounds like a party. A fourth of a hin of wine. Okay? So what do they do with that? What do they do with the wine? Well, there are some that they drink and there's some that they pour out. There's doctrine in all of that. It's a beautiful thing. <coughs> I think we're overdue to have uh, Ariel Ministries come and teach us uh, a Jewish uh, uh, Seder demonstration. All right, over to Psalms then. Psalm 19. And you know, it's interesting when you go through the Psalms, you go through Psalms and Proverbs, and you see the reality that Jewish believers had in the Old Testament. You, you kind of might lose that in Leviticus because it's focused on the priesthood, it's focused on the ritual, there's all the, the blood and the do's and don'ts and the death and whatever. And, and you would tend to think, or you could, I could, fall into a, a mindset that, man, everybody in the Old Testament was just, uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was formal, it was ritualistic, it was legalistic, it was cold, it was, you know. Uh, but that's an assumption. It's actually not a biblical assumption. The scriptures don't bear that out. When you look to the Psalms, you look to wisdom literature, you see that it was very devotional. It was not just cold ritual without reality, that there was a deep devotion uh, in, in what they did and why they did it. And uh, I think it gets reflected in, in a lot of ways. And Ratzon vocabulary is, is a useful um, study to help bring that out. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be ratzon in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a believer with doctrine. This is a believer that's intimate in fellowship with Yahweh. And uh, notice it has it's beyond anything ritualistic. It's beyond any kind of liturgy. There's no animal getting sacrificed here. There's no. Uh, um, There's nothing Levitical in this. This is just a believer loving the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be ratzon in your sight. And so uh, I like that. How about Psalm 40? (coughs) And uh, we're headed for verse 8. But there's so much here in Psalm 40. It's a Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. What's the value in persistent prayer and waiting? The value, we draw, we're drawing closer, we're drawing closer, we're waiting. He'll answer when he's ready. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. See, he's not slow about it. He's not going to let you down. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And so based on his experience, based on this rescue, based on being saved, being delivered, he now has a new song. And his his, uh, creativity wants to honor the Creator by writing this new song. And it's going to edify many. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. It's a rational faith based upon what they've observed in... uh, God's faithfulness towards David. How blessed, this is Asherah, happy. Happy is the man who has made Yahweh his trust, his faith. 
and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. That crowd is always ready and uh, they'll welcome you with open arms so they can make you twice as much a son of hell as they themselves are. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) All right, they would be too numerous to count. So count your many blessings, name them one by one. (laughs) Good thing we're going to be in heaven forever. That's how long it's going to take because it's too numerous to count. But now notice verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, or as it's rendered in Hebrews, a body thou hast prepared for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. This is, uh, yes, it's Davidic, but it's also messianic. It's prophetic, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And so here's Ratzon. The Ratzon comes from the perspective of the worshiper. David Ratzons, so he knows that Yahweh will Ratzon him. See how that works? I delight to do your will. That's what Jesus said. I haven't come to do my own will. I've come to do his will. Your law is within my heart. That's why we have the value of memorizing Scripture. We have the value of hiding the Word in our heart that I might not sin against thee, the blessings of treasuring the Word of God internally within our soul um, provides for this rat's own, provides for this intimacy with God. All right, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. So there's a gospel verse from the Old Testament. (laughs) And uh, there it is. There's a lot of good news in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. Uh, Psalm 69 and verse 13. (coughs) Another Davidic psalm, one that's very messianic. You'll note all through this, the conflict David experienced is uh, prophetic as typology in anticipation of what Jesus will experience. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overwhelms me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. But he's not going to stop. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. And so... um, different traditions as far as when this psalm was written and at what stage of David's life and ministry does it reflect different things. Um, Let's see, verse 7. Let's see. (laughs) Where did I stop? Verse 5. O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. We're going to get to that doctrine in the next paragraph of Psalms that God's the one that looks upon our heart, the only one that can look upon our heart. And that's to our benefit. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. There's other believers, and they're watching me, and their faith is in God, and I don't want them, I don't want me to be the cause of them stumbling. 
I don't want them to be ashamed of belief in God because, well, look at the pastor. He, he tried that and that didn't work for him. And, and it's just, you're accountable. You've got to set that example. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That's true for David, true for Job, true for Jesus, true for so many. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> you know where this gets fulfilled. And Jesus is driving out the money, changer, uh, the, the money changers in the temple. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Do you get insulted when they insult God? You should. You bear the name of God. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Uh, Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of the drunkards. (laughs) You become the drinking song next Friday night at the honky tonk or whatever it might be. But as for me, you know, when do you give up? When do you stop? When do you say that's it? Okay. This club on 6th Street now, they've got a, a knight that's named after me. <laughs> and it's, let's laugh at whoever knight, and they sing these songs, okay? All right? I'm just saying, that's not true. I'm just illustrating, all right? Whatever the case may be. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, at a rat's own time. So not only does God answer in an acceptable way, He also answers at an acceptable time. His timing is perfect. It's never too soon. It's never too late. Um, it's never too early for us, but we, uh, we want it now, and yet now might not be rat's own. Uh, we might have to wait a while. We may have to strengthen our faith. We might have to endure even more until it becomes rat's own in the eyes of God that now is the perfect moment at an acceptable time. O oh God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. All right, well, there's a ton more. And you're going to see, um, when you read this whole, when you read, it's a long one, but you, you notice, um, you get down to verse 21, they gave me gall for my food, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> okay. There is so much here. Blotting out from the book of life in verse 28, and there's some doctrine. Um, people get scared on that. <coughs> don't worry, you don't have to be scared. Anyway, Psalm 69, it's a beautiful psalm. And David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus Christ hung on the cross. What a powerful testament. I think between Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, you read these things and you go, wow, how in the world does uh, somebody think this was all just a coincidence or an accident? Psalm 145, verse 16 and verse 19. <coughs> Again, you just see that it's Davidic. All of these are Davidic. And you've got um, so much devotion and love and intimacy. It's not, uh, <coughs> it's not just empty, cold liturgy and ritual. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. We're just one generation away from having an atheistic uh, 
train wreck in this country. So we better have that next generation prepared. Uh, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Probably the most repeated phrase in the whole Old Testament right there. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. That's our privilege. That's our delight. Because He saved us by grace through faith. We get to praise Him and bless Him in our, uh, in our priesthood. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. If we don't preach it, who will? (laughs) We better be preaching it. How will they believe if it's not preached? Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains, this is verse 14, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's ratzon. You satisfy the ratzon of every living thing. It all comes from Him. We're living day by day by grace through faith. That's what faith rest is all about. We had faith rest Sunday night. And we're just looking to the Lord and rejoicing as He faithfully provides. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Not empty, stupid, baby emotionalism. In truth. Come before the Lord with doctrine. Come as a mature son. Come in faith rest, claiming the promises. And if, there's, if you're not near to the Lord, He's not the one that moved. I'll tell you that right now. You're the one that moved. If, you, if there's distance between you and God, it's because you moved. So draw near. He's near to all who call upon Him. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And that's ratzon. He will fulfill the ratzon, desire of those who fear Him. This is not name it and claim it prosperity theology. This is not, you know, all the goofiness of uh, our carnal lusts and our desires. But as we ratzon in the things of the Lord, then those true desires shaped by the Word of God will always be provided for. The Lord keeps all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless His holy name forever and ever. There's coming a day when all of humanity on planet Earth will be born again. Can you imagine? (laughs) Haven't had that since the flood. (laughs) Noah and his wife and their kids, they got off the ark. There were eight humans, and that's the last time we've had 100%. If we did then, I can't prove for a fact that the sons were all saved or the wives were all saved. Noah was a righteous man. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I can prove that biblically. Um, I think I can make a case for Shem and Japheth in their regenerate state. I'd probably make a case for Ham and his regenerate state. But we know nothing about their wives and their children. <coughs> but there is coming a day when all flesh will bless His holy name forever and ever. He will pour out His Spirit on all flesh and that didn't happen at Pentecost. <laughs> the church began, it wasn't all flesh receiving the Spirit. It was just 120 in the upper room. No, this is still waiting in uh, future millennial and fullness of time fulfillment. <coughs> How about Proverbs 8.35? Remember this one? And this is one, boy, we took 
I don't know, 10 hours to go through chapter 8. We, we spent a lot of classes in Proverbs chapter 8. I don't even know how many. Because we have the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ here, starting in verse 22. We have childbearing language that's applied between the Father and the Son. And uh, we know it's not deity that gets created. Deity is uncreated. So what is it that's birthed? Not deity. Humanity is birthed. And that's what we see here. The Yahweh birthed me, acquired me at the beginning of His way, before His works of all, before anything else God ever did. This is the boundary between eternity past and time itself. This is the alpha moment of the time dimension at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. This is before the Genesis 1-1 beginning. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, before that, who was in the beginning with God? The same was in the beginning with God, right? The Word was God. And so we have it described here as well. Anyway, verse 24 has birthing language, I was brought forth. Verse 25 has birthing language, I was brought forth. This is the kind of childbirth language that we have uh, throughout the Old Testament. Childbirth language like uh, little Benji coming into the world. Last, uh, missed it by two days. He could have had my birthday. But <laughs> I told her, I said, don't worry. You know, when her water broke, I said, you don't want three days of labor. You just have that baby now. You know, nice. You know, you came close to the 14th. All right. This is all childbirth language. And then as the son is birth, and then as the father and the son delight in each other, we see this. And you get down to verse 30 and you see this. I was beside him as a master workman. That's huge because the verses leading up to that are, are, indica- are indicative of the father's role in creation. But then when we get to verse 30, we see that the father was the architect and the designer, but Jesus, the son, was the actual uh, carpenter, was the actual workman who did the work, the contractor. And I was daily his ratzon, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing. It's a word for playing. It's a word for, uh, you know, if it was adults, it's a word for uh, for playing. It's a word for, um, I mean, it's even used in, in marital relations when you're playing. It's a different kind of playing. But it's rejoicing for a little kid. It's just a little kid having fun. Daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight, my rat's own, in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. And now he's got this uh, gospel right here. <coughs> Verse 35, he who finds me finds life and obtains rat's own from the Lord. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have life, and you will never have the rat's own of God the Father. A good Old Testament gospel passage. He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Rejection of Jesus Christ is the, uh, the default for fallen humanity. We're, we're all lost, total depravity in Adam. And uh, there you go. Reject the Christ, there is no provision for eternal life. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so uh, those who hate me love death. And they'll Embrace what they love for all eternity. The second death in the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's God's provision for their nature. There's an additional 13 times that Ratzon shows up in uh, Proverbs 10 through 19. And so we'll see them. Uh, we've already seen a couple in chapter 10 and chapter 11. And of course, this morning in chapter 14. We also have Isaiah 61 2. 
the last of our Ratzon usages, and it's a messianic prophecy as it relates to uh, the coming kingdom, Isaiah 61, 2. <coughs> Verse 1, and this is a, a text that Jesus preached on, by the way. He uh, was handed this scroll when he was uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum, and uh, he opened it up and he starts reading from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's Messiah, that's anointing. To bring good news to the afflicted. What is this good news? What is this gospel anyway? We got gospel coming up on Sunday nights. Let's see. First Sunday in February. Topic is gospel. Um, To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to, and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And stop right there. When you stop right there, you're only one-third of the way through verse 2. You've read verse 1 and you've read 2a and you're ignoring 2b and 2c. The second two-thirds of the verse as well as verse 3, those are all second advent. It's only verse 1 and 2a that are first advent. So when Jesus was preaching this, he read a verse, he read a third of a verse, and he stopped. And he rolled up the scroll and he handed it to the attendant and he took his seat. And he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a beautiful, beautiful doctrine. And it teaches us how do we rightly divide the word of truth? How do we discern between complete or incomplete, fulfilled and not yet fulfilled? Because clearly, if you go on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God... Jesus didn't come in first advent for vengeance. That's second advent. That's when he comes again. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. Giving them a garland instead of ashes. That's second advent. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. That's second advent. He's going to bring them through the tribulation and bring them their kingdom of peace in the coming millennium. But that's all second advent. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then when you go on and you see verses 4 and following, it's clear. They're rebuilding the ancient ruins and the restoration of the kingdom and and all these things. (coughs) In any event, when we proclaim the Ratzon year of the Lord, (laughs) okay, that is a proclamation, the Ratzon year of the Lord. That's where he stopped. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he stopped, said, we're here. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was offering them the kingdom and they rejected it. They they made it subjective. They made it personal. I said, who does this guy think he is? Didn't he grow up in Nazareth? Don't we know? We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. Who's this uneducated, you know, this agramatos and idioti, this uh, uneducated, illiterate carpenter. Who does he think he is? Yeah. He's the one this this scripture is talking about. That's who he is. (laughs) So, the favorable year of the Lord. A delight is a favorable, acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it, to embrace it closely. All right. Let's get a look now at verses 10 through 14. Proverbs 14, verses 10 through 14. <coughs> the heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. All right. The next few verses we're going to take one by one. Uh, nope, not true. We'll take verse 10 by itself. We'll take verses 11 and 12 together. We'll take verses 13 and 14 together. <coughs> but verse 10 stands alone. 
Uh, the heart knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share its joy. All right, so we got an A part and a B part. It's got two halves to this poetry. Um, we have a, uh, yourself on the one hand, somebody that's not you on the other hand, called a stranger. Okay, in this in this application, a stranger is anybody that's not you. <laughs> okay, you know what you're dealing with. We have uh, bitterness in the A part. We've got joy in the B part. And so we see that in the nature of this poetry, and we've seen it lots of times, we, uh, we understand that both elements are true in both halves of the verse. So that my heart, my inner man, my lave, the, the Hebrew lave is like the Greek cardia, my innermost being knows my own bitterness and joy. Okay? And I might have an external show, I might be lying to others, and nobody else may know how miserable I am because I'm a pretty good actor and I fake it. But my innermost being... My innermost being knows I'm a, I'm a train wreck, okay? I'm just full of bitterness, you know, as long as the day is long. And nobody else knows that but me. Likewise, the joy. Maybe externally I look like testing is, is out of control and things are awful and, and uh, you know, I'm on the verge of something drastic. But inwardly, I've got the, the peace of, of God that surpasseth all understanding. I am just relaxed as, as anything. Faith rest is just taking control and, and uh, I don't have a, a, a care in this world. But they don't know that because they can't see that. The soul is mine and only God looks upon the soul. And that's what we understand. Now, we try to develop a sympathy. We try to uh, develop a, a, a mutual uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We try to develop a mutual, supportive, sympathetic spirit one with another. And a lot of this comes up in Philippians too. We're teaching it right now. If there's affection and, and compassion, make my joy complete. That we can be sympathetic, but we can't be inside. We can't be inside. And so, you know, a, a widow comes along and she lost her husband so she can come alongside another widow. And, and she has a related perspective because she had a similar test whenever that happened. But it's not the same as what that person's going through right here, right now, because it's still raw. It's still active. It's still live. It's still subjective, personal, first person. I mean, it is what it is. And so even someone that's been through something similar is still not inside that other person's soul. And so um, these things are interesting too. <coughs> personal suffering is personal. It is personal. The heart understands it, whether it's the, the lave in Hebrew or the cardia in Greek. You know in your soul, not only the, the bitterness, but also the joy, any kind of passions, they're yours. Personal suffering is personal. Other humans can't get inside our soul. The closest it comes is with a spouse. The closest it comes is one man and one woman. The two become one flesh. What happens? They become one spirit, we're told. We have examples of that in the Old Testament where the, <coughs> the soul of Dinah was knit to the soul of, of uh, Shechem. So we have an example of that. Um, but that, that joining of, of souls is still not internalized. It's just sewn together. I think it's knitted is, a, is an old King James term. Um, but other humans can't get inside our soul. And thankfully, neither can Satan. No angel can get inside your soul. Satan can watch you all day long. He's, in some cases, you know, fallen angels, demons. They've got nothing better to do. So yeah, they can watch you around the clock. They can get some of their buddies and take shifts and watch what you're doing. And they, they can learn 
And they're, and they're not stupid. They've been, they've been at this a long, long time. The fallen angels and the demons have been around longer than we have. <laughs> and so they can watch our behavior. They can eavesdrop on what we say. But they can't read your mind. They can't climb inside your soul. Even when they possess you. They possess your body. It's interesting. It's a mark of deity that only God does this. If someone else could do this, then there'd be more than one God. But there's only one God. It's a mark of his, of his essential deity. So other humans can't get inside our soul. 1 Samuel 16, 7, 1 Kings 8, 39, Jeremiah 17, 9. And maybe you have other verses as well that you like in addition to those. Those are just kind of my favorites. Are you familiar with these? 1 Samuel 16, 7. <coughs> and in a way, this truth is a blessing for us because when we do come alongside in comfort, we don't try to come alongside and claim that we have all the answers. We don't try to come alongside and claim that we understand. We don't, uh, you know, this is where, uh, you know, secular uh, psychotherapy goes off the rails, as if they've got some special insight into the, into the suke. Okay? Nobody does. God does. <coughs> and so when a brother comes to encourage me, I don't want him to be a know-it-all and tell me that he knows everything. I want him to tell me that he's joining with me before God the Father, the one who does know everything. The one who does uh, with my Savior, the one that intercedes with groanings too deep for understanding, the one that identified with my sins. See, So i got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working in prayer. And I want my brother to tell me that he's right there with me in prayer. Because there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what we talk about in, in, uh, in this. So you might recall the context for 1 Samuel 16 is the Jewish nations in open rebellion. They want to have a king like all the nations around them all have kings. And what's wrong with us? We don't have a king. Okay, There's nothing wrong with you. That's great. I'm glad you don't have a king. Yahweh's your king. You're a theocracy. You've got the Lord God. You've got a priesthood. You've got 12 tribes. Each tribe has their tribal prince. What do you want a king for? <coughs> well, all these other nations have kings. We want to have a king. And so uh, the first one they get is Saul, who's tall, dark, and handsome, and he's a wreck. And then the second one they get is David, who's not tall, dark, and handsome. He's short, ruddy, and uh, he's handsome. Okay. And uh, when Samuel is sent, and I just love this, I'm going to run out of time. (coughs) So the end of chapter 15 gives us a great picture for what Jewish prophets were all about. Because Saul was disobedient. And he was supposed to execute all the Amalekites, but he kept King Agag alive. And so Samuel shows up and says, you, why are you disobedient? You disobedient rebel. And why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? You wanted to get plunder. right? So he's just nailing Saul on this. You can back up to verse uh, 19 of chapter 15 and you're going to see that. why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You've got to approach God on His terms or it won't be rat's own. But Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. (laughs) You know? Carnal believers will always try to convince you that they're okay with what they did. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I obeyed. I obeyed. I went on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
You call that obedience? Why did you bring back Agag? Why is he not dead? But the people took some of the... See, like Adam blamed Eve. <laughs> Eve blamed the serpent. Here's... Uh, well, the people made me do it. The people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen. See, I, that wasn't me. I didn't want to do that, but they wanted to do it. And, and we only did it so we could sacrifice. It was, it was a holy thing. <coughs> the people took some of the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Out of his own mouth, he just convicted himself. He admits he knows that it was devoted to destruction. God doesn't want it as a sacrifice. He wants it destroyed. Everything that breathes was to die. He didn't want a sacrifice from the Amalekites. And so uh, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Jesus quotes this. This is so true for us. <coughs> All right. Verse 23, for rebellion is, at the sin, is as the sin of divination. Insubordination is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. This is game over for Saul. God's divine discipline is removing his kingdom. So Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the commandment of the Lord. So this sounds good, right? Doesn't this sound like confession? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ah, don't take a New Testament verse and apply it to Saul. <laughs> That's true for us, amen. We are born again believers in Jesus Christ in the past completed victorious work of Christ on the cross. <coughs> and yes, he is confessing in a way, but he will not have his judgment reversed. By the way, you can be restored to fellowship and still face consequences for your stupid carnality right? Yeah, you still are going to face consequences for what you did. So he tries to confess in verse 24. He's begging, please pardon my sin, return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. See, rejection of doctrine, you know how powerful that is? And so as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, see, they didn't have PowerPoint back then. They used stuff like this for their visual aids. <laughs> and the, the hem of the robe just tears right off. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. All right, so then as the chapter ends, Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, though <laughs> little does he know. See, he thinks that uh, he's, he's skating, he's getting away with it, whatever. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal, devoted to destruction. These prophets, the Jewish prophets did not mess around. Samuel, uh, Jeremiah, these guys were tough men. Chopped him up. And Samuel went to Ramah. But Saul went to his house at Gibeah, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So, you know, he chops him up in all these little bits. And then what? <coughs> I believe, it doesn't say so in the text, but there are traditions and legends. I believe that those little pieces were sent throughout the land on a, on a tour. 
those little pieces were, were spread far and wide so people across the nation of Israel would see, look at this, Yahweh means what he says. And his prophets don't mess around. So then we get to chapter 16, and Saul, Samuel comes to Bethlehem. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. <coughs> and so he goes, and I think it's curious, I, I laugh when I read this because verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said and he came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him. <laughs> I bet, I'd be nervous after what he just did in the last chapter with Agag. Like, uh, hello, pardon us, uh, do you come in peace? <laughs> trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? You know? Welcome to Bethlehem. Can we help you? Were you just leaving? <laughs> you know, why are you here? The kind of thing that makes you nervous. He says, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And so this is going to be then the venue that he uh, is going to anoint David. But this is where he goes wrong. And Samuel is a prophet. He's an older man. He should know better than this. <coughs> and so he consecrated Jesse and his sons, invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, wow, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Man, look at this guy. Wow, this Eliab, right? Elohim is my Ab. God is my father. Eliab, what a great guy. And I'm sure he's tall, dark, and handsome. I'm sure he's, he's impressive, firstborn and all that. He thought, surely the Lord's Messiah, Mashiach, Christ is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees. Now this is the point of what we're getting to in Proverbs 14.10. Your soul, no one else can look into that soul but God and God alone. Man sees the external. God sees the internal. Your innermost being can identify the, the bitterness and the joy. No, the stranger cannot, but only God can. And we see this here. Um, I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the lave, lavav, the heart. And so next it's Abinadab's turn. Nope, not him either. Next it's Shammah's turn. Nope, not him either. Seven of the sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? Well, there's the runt of the litter. <laughs> The youngest, you don't want him. He's small, he's a pipsqueak. There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. <coughs> and you might imagine, I mean, he was the least important. He was out there watching the sheep. Eliab and the older brothers, they got to come in and be consecrated and have the feast. And, you know, a little brother had to be working. Now, in fact, it was probably Eliab that had to go out there and watch those sheep while the well, you send your runt brother in here. <laughs> so Samuel took the horn of oil. And so he comes in, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. Tons of ink spilled on that term, but reddish. He was uh, probably, you know, a redhead. Maybe even had rosacea problems, who knows. With uh, beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. 
Very few believers in the Old Testament had the permanent lifelong indwelling of the God the Holy Spirit, but David was one of them. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So, all right. Well, uh, we'll have to pick up on here. Personal suffering is personal. Uh, there's some good passages in 1 Kings. Of course, Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know it? Rhetorical. God and God alone. Nobody else can know it. And especially that uh, expert you're paying $120 a billable hour to lay on his couch and he's going to explain to you the, the things of your, of your psuche. Yeah, he's a psucheologist, all right, but um, Scripture says he does not know your heart the way that God does and that the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So that's where we're going. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank, thank you for your truth. Thank you for sustaining my voice and all that you do, Father. This season is yours as you designed it and as it's fallen. Uh, but Father, uh, thank you for being faithful. Pray that we would learn this truth, that we would digest it, that it would dwell richly, that we would apply it. Father, and I just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.